1: and most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. So the episode you're about to hear is part two of our interview with the eminent Dr. Robert Tiesel. And the whole thing kind of goes in chronological order. In the last episode, Dr. Tiesel went over the history of the evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation and how it influenced policy decisions about how stroke rehab is implemented in his Canadian province, Ontario. Also Dr. Tiesel and Marcus Sakley talked about the huge amount of research that's been done in stroke rehab and how this knowledge could be, but has not yet been translated clinically. This second episode begins with a discussion of the treatment options that prime the brain and then progresses to what the future holds. I think you'll find this an amazing discussion by someone who knows the subject globally in a way that no one else does. If you're a clinician, I think you'll agree that this stuff can really help your clinical practice, not just tomorrow, but right into the future. If you're a student, you'll get a glimpse of what treatments I am confident will be used in rehab clinics soon, and you'll be ahead of the curve, but that's not always a super comfortable position to be in. And if you're a survivor or a caregiver, you have the most to gain. Consider the brain primers in your arsenal of recovery options as you progress towards recovery.
2: try and develop ways in which we can move things forward, you know, Uh, not necessarily get to the You know, I say research is always about trying to get to the truth (laughs) and we're far from it. And our piece hopefully will get us a little closer to it, but it clearly isn't going to be it. But I do think, you know, I think we all agree that we're kind of at a point where we're stuck, you know, in stroke rehab. There doesn't seem to be a lot of movement forward clinically. You know, we've gotten really good at standardized care and even that's starting to be eroded. You know what I mean? In some jurisdictions, and I think it's time for us to really think about What do we pivot to next, right? What do we add on to that to make it better? Get people excited about stroke rehab again and and sort of end that erosion of funding that is occurring in some centers and encourage more funding in other centers.
1: Go back to the priming concept because i had this idea that it actually primed the brain in some way for recovery it doesn't drive the recovery but it primes the brain so that when these more hands-on kinds of things, the the stuff that facilitates recovery, is am I looking at that right? Does it actually prime the brain in some way so that I real think, recovery can happen?
2: I think that's the thinking, right? Think of RTMS; you zap them and they seem to do better. Um, you know, it's a it's pretty physical and it's pretty obvious, and I and I think. Um, when you really look at how things like mirror therapy and that work, they're clearly doing something to the brain that improves how patients then recover. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you think, Marcus, but, um, you know, I I couldn't really describe to you, I don't know enough about those therapies. Like there are people out there that know this stuff in great depth and have studied it very carefully to know that it all consistently primes the brain, but it seems to me that that's what these treatments do.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I think uh, it's not necessarily going to improve it on its own. It needs to be in combination with the the you know, the conventional therapies that that they're doing every day. And it just allows for, I mean, I think it depends, as Bob said, on the type of therapy, the mechanism of action and whatnot. But in general, I think these primers are designed to, from a neurophysiological standpoint, allow greater you know plasticity or whatever process is going on to occur maybe to a greater degree or for a longer period of time, extend that critical window. Um and, and I
2: think part of what we do is, you know, other people are going to have to figure out where this stuff is useful and where it's not. I mean, I think that's going to be part of the new future that we're going down. And you know, what I call You know, part of what we're talking about is moving away from standardized care or adding to standardized care with more of a personalized approach, right? Which therapists do automatically. I mean, a therapist, when they automatically see a patient, structures the therapy to that patient. It's all very personalized, but this is personalizing it in terms of using other technologies and other treatments. Um, and and, and, our, and our point in our to kind of help move this forward is we can point out the fact, and I think that's why we're here, that, you know, there are, you know, mirror therapy appears to be a treatment that works. You know, there are 75 RCTs of mirror therapy, like, you know, one of my other questions is, do we need a fourth at 76? I doubt it. <laughs> right? (laughs) Unless it's maybe a much larger multicentric trial. But you know, there are 75 RCTs and you can sit and argue about the quality and the, you know, as many of them are small trials, but when you got 75 of them, right? 70, did I say that? 75 RCTs for mirror therapy. It seems to me that's a pretty rich database that we can start tapping into and start utilizing and trying to figure out where that fits, right? Bilateral arm training, you know, 66 randomized controlled trials, you know, virtual reality, 60, 99 trials, you know, EMG biofeedback, 66. I mean, it just keeps coming, right? There's just this huge database that I don't know that we're fully taking advantage of. Does the
1: fact that... That they have a lot of randomized controlled trials suggest that necessarily
2: they work is more better in that regard i don't know that we can necessarily say there's a correlation between the number of rcts and the efficacy It'd be an interesting question but i don't think there. i don't think that's true I don't think that's true. Because um,
1: when Marcus was talking about 50 uh, interventions uh, that seemed to do well, when we did our review of the EBRSR, I don't think we came up with that many. And that leads me to another question. We're trying to interpret what you guys were saying about the words can and may and may not. And it seemed like in the bullet points, those were the three designations. And there was only one that I found that said may, and that was mirror therapy. At least in the upper, we just looked at the upper and lower extremity. We didn't look at the the whole thing. Can you tell us like what can, may, and may not means and what it would mean to a clinician trying to
3: figure out what to do. Point of clarification, I guess I, sh- I should mention when I say 50 interventions over, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, there's 62 different interventions that we found. Not all of those have proven efficacy. Okay, Those are the amount of interventions that we have. Many of which though do, do show to be better than, you know, conventional care or whatever the control was in that particular situation. Regarding the words, I guess... Can and may, I feel, are very similar. Uh, and, and there's no real difference in my mind. I think it might just be whoever wrote that and, the, and their choice. But um, may and may not, and then the, the literature is conflicting, I think are sort of three standard terms that we use. So, um, the way that the EBRSR is set up, the way we make these evidence statements, we take the existing evidence for a particular statement. And so generally that follows kind of a PICO, I don't know if Population Intervention Control and Outcome. So, I mean, the patients, the population in this case is going to be stroke every time. Uh, But we say this intervention may or may not improve this outcome compared to this comparator, right? So CIMT may be more beneficial than conventional therapy for improving motor function. And in that case, that would be at least the way that we write the EBRSR, that's greater than 66% or two thirds. Greater than two thirds of the studies are reporting a positive effect for that intervention. If we find something between 50 and two-thirds, 50% and 66%, then we would say that the literature is conflicting. And if it's below 50% of the trials, uh, we would then say may not. I guess the reason we use may uh, is simply because that this evidence is shifting year to year, really. You know, as Bob said, we have so many trials coming in uh, we may have, you know, we may double the amount of RCTs for a particular type of intervention within one annual update. And so that evidence is going to shift. Uh, more trials come in, different stuff. So uh, I think the may is just to reflect that uh, this isn't a definitive answer or statement that we, we, you know, it's an ongoing process.
2: One of, the, one of the challenges with EBSR and one of its greatest weaknesses is that we don't actually do a full meta-analysis. You know, it's more looking at the number of randomized control trials and what direction they're going, and then making a judgment based on actually the number of randomized control trials, unless there's one trial that obviously is a large and more dominant one. And the reason for that is just it's so big, right? It's so big and we have limited resources. Um, You know, we can't do a a full meta-analysis on the entire EBSR or, you know, I would need a lot more resources than I currently have. So, and that's a weakness, um, you know, and that's one of the, the criticisms of the EBSR is that it has that significant limitation to it. And it's a legitimate criticism. You know, it, it, it is not as good as a meta-analysis in a specific area. It's, its strength is it covers consistently, in the same manner, all of the interventions with regard to stroke rehab across the board. So it's a place you can go and get an idea of what's working and what's not working. But it is by no means a replacement for a proper meta-analysis, which are much more challenging. And we just don't have the resource to do that on a yearly basis.
0: I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the comment you made about therapists thinking it's not within their scope of practice. I know that people are very big on certifications and they want all of these different certifications and titles after their name to almost to legitimize themselves as therapists, but also to help them stand out and being able to treat particular types of patients or clientele. But I wonder if you would speak to that a little bit.
2: Um, Well, I I think, again, you have to remember, it's it's not the majority and it's a small number, but it's still a bit surprising, right? And it tells us we still have some work to do. It's interesting. And Stroke rehabilitation is there's not a lot of places where you can go for certification for training in any of these sort of things we're talking about interventions, right? It doesn't really exist. There are courses out there and they're, um, um, it can be fairly expensive, but there are a number of, of re centers, particularly in the U.S., who offer courses. On individual treatments, and we'll give you a certificate at the end. But those those are, are are much harder to access. I think that's one of the reasons for the popularity of the Bobath training, right? It's a certificate you can get at the end of stroke rehab that's manageable and makes a certain amount of sense. And you know, to their credit, the Bobathers have pivoted and and, and incorporated a lot of uh, task specific therapy now in their treatment. So I think the courses now are you know not like they used to be when we used to say, like, we need to move past neurodevelopmental, I think they have and, and offer a pretty good product. But that's one of the reasons they're so popular. It's one of the few courses that's really out there that consistently treats people at a cost that's manageable. So I think we need to do a much better job of offering um, courses on various treatments and offering people certifications so they begin to feel comfortable in terms of utilizing these types of treatments. I think that would be very, very useful.
0: I agree. I know as an instructor in an Therapy assistant program. We teach the various concepts, and then there seems to be a disconnect when students go out into the field and do their field training, where you don't see the practitioners actually utilizing some of these techniques that you've talked about.
2: Yes. Well, yeah. Again, I, I actually think a framework is helpful, and and again, you know, we're, we we we're simplifying a complicated world to some extent. Um, you know, you're a therapist. You've got C six patients today to spend an hour with each one, you're expected to accomplish a certain amount. You have to chart afterwards. You're busy, you know, you're you're expected to do a lot. And then somebody says, you know, why aren't you trying these adjunct therapies? (laughs) (laughs) And you're thinking, like, I'd love to, you know? Um, So, I mean, it's also, I think, part of the culture is setting up an environment where that is allowed and able Mm -hmm. to be done, just like we did with standardized care, right? Like I said, when we got the administrators on on board, um, things really took off. Right. When everybody became uh, agreed that this is uh, the standard of care that we want to be able to provide our patients because it's proven and uh, I don't want to be the center that's left behind. um, We saw real change. Right. And I I, I think this. We need, to, we need to start talking and dealing more with the adjunct issue to make it more and more popular. And again, there are some centers that, um, as you know, are, are, are quite advanced and, and would start be utilizing these treatments regularly as part of their treatment. You could argue their marketing, um, but part of their treatment, but there's just too few. And that's part of the challenge right now. Uh, but I see that as the future. I see this, this introduction of more and more technology and adjunct therapies uh, as the future. And it, it's interestingly Despite the fact that a lot of these technologies are relatively new, they often now are the ones that lead in terms of the number of randomized controlled trials. So there's certainly a lot of research being done on technology, but we've been, I think, slow to adopt technology or know where it really fits in you know, and and we don't have a lot of guidelines on it either. If you look at guidelines, guidelines really are big, uh, practice guidelines are really big on the elements of standardized care. But then when they get into things like, uh, and I know because I co-chaired the last two Canadian Stroke Rehab Guidelines, and when we get into things like the adjunct therapy, RTMS, and that, we get fairly tenuous in our guidelines, you may consider or think about. (laughs) and not
0: Okay, I'm thinking.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And so I, I, and then guidelines are are paid attention to by administrators quite a bit and by leaders, you know? And so uh, I I think we need to figure out, and this might be a good project for the um, research panel that Julie Bernhardt runs, uh, Australia, the international to, to maybe come up with a a plan for how we better use adjunct therapies um, and how we incorporate those into practice and how we encourage people to do so and how we develop um, the new, I think the new research Um, developing into uh, what patients they should be utilized for. And we've done a bit of that work uh, and we can talk about it in terms of time post-stroke when we get into the network meta-analysis.
1: Hey, I wonder, we're going to put links in all the show notes that you sent sent us, Marcus, um, including the spinal cord injury research evidence, as well as the collaboration of rehabilitation research evidence. Can you guys go over those a little bit and Tell us what great things are in there for clinicians and maybe survivors.
2: I'll talk about, first of all, the spinal cord one. It's called Skyer, Spinal Cord Injury Rehab Evidence. And it's a joint project by our center and Vancouver uh, with uh, the under the leadership of Janice Eng. And for the SCIRE, I, I the Vancouver group has definitely taken the lead and they're doing probably 60 to 70% of the work. So and and we are um, significant contributors to that, and uh, we have our part. They have their part. And it, it, Sky is an interesting document. It's 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 big. Um, it's well done. It's well resourced. Um, it has two components to it. It has an, um Spinal Cord Professional, which is designed for the rehab professional, which is similar to the SREBR, all right? It's, it's actually based on the SREBR. So it's very similar, Spinal Cord, an excellent document, and I certainly advise people to look at it if you're involved in Spinal Cord Research. Or spinal cord uh, clinical care. They also, interestingly, and, and we don't have anything like this in, in in stroke, but they've got a spinal cord community. And so they have a uh, part of the Skyer documentation is a website, uh, which is um, part of the website is designed... Uh, on various topics for, um, spinal cord patients. So it's called spinal cord community, right? And a lot of videos, um, uh uh on and 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 other thing that they've really done a lot is youtube videos looking at how to do different assessments so you know it's interesting that the srabr is just tremendously um uh blessed with this enormous amount of data or cursed however you want to argue it huh. um spinal cord um doesn't have quite the same volume of data but i think the skier is been done much better because it has both evidence like the uh, SREBR, but it also has this spinal cord community, which looks at, which is directed towards more of a patient population. And it also uses a lot of videos to teach people how to do, to teach people about various problems, but videos that are most popular are those that teach um, therapists how to do various um, outcome measures and do them properly. So, so the, the has been an interesting, um, spin off of the SRBR and and thanks to the Vancouver group they've actually taken it to a whole different level with different uh, target groups than the SRBR we also have the Arabi uh, which is ERABI, um, which is our brain injury review. Um, and, and traumatic brain injury is different than SRABR in that it, it it does not have nearly as much evidence. It probably has a 10th of the randomized control trials. So we end up with the ARABI utilizing a lot of non-RCTs to fill the gaps. And, and, and its focus is quite a bit different, as you know. The, for brain injury, the focus is more on cognitive issues and mental health issues, right? They're the dominant issues in, in, in traumatic brain injury. And, and and the community reintegration. Whereas, for instance, on the motor side of things, they'll only have like 50 RCTs in traumatic brain injury. And a lot of those will be about Botox and casting and treating spasticity. They don't have the same wealth of information when it comes to motor or motor sensory recovery that you would see in the SRABR. And I think that probably spikes to the presentation and the, the main features of a traumatic brain injury. You learn a lot about the various neural rehabilitations just from how the research has developed and what it's focused on. I also think traumatic brain injury has more challenges when it comes to randomized controlled trials because of the cognitive nature of their patients, which makes it more difficult.
1: How much of the on the physical side, do you think that because there's so much more information, as you're pointing out with stroke survivors and uh, a lot more stroke research versus other forms of acquired brain injury, how much of the physical stuff is translatable? Do you think it's reasonable for somebody with brain injury to think, well, there's this stroke treatment, Um, maybe it'll work for me. I got an 80% deficit on my right side and a 30% deficit on my left side. Maybe I should Put emit on my left side and try to constrain uh, and, and drive uh, changes that way. Is, is it translatable? Is it not? What do you think? I,
2: I, I think it's partially translatable. Um, you know, traumatic brain injury and stroke are two different entities. They just are. True stroke tends to be focal and traumatic brain injury tends to be more diffuse. There will be times when traumatic brain injury will present with more focal lesions, right? Particularly involving the corticospinal tract. And in those cases, you can apply some of the research that we see in stroke Um, because the lesion and the pathophysiology are similar. But in so much of traumatic brain injury, it, it is completely different from what you would see in stroke. You know, and so there are real limitations in trying to apply the data in stroke to traumatic brain injury. Now, there are some, 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 some times when we do apply the data in stroke to traumatic brain injury, and one of them is swallowing. Swallowing is, you know, fairly well-developed in stroke, uh, nothing like motor, but it's better developed in stroke. And the principles that underpin treatment of swallowing and stroke are not that much different than they would be in traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. So we'll use the data then. You could argue if you're a patient who has hemiplegia after traumatic brain injury, you're going to probably go look at the stroke literature or utilize those principles because you won't find a, as much or nearly the data you need in the traumatic brain injury literature. You're going to go to the stroke literature. But I I think it, there's some real risk to assuming that traumatic brain injuries are similar to stroke. They're not. They're completely different entities. Um, and so there's limitations to applying the stroke data to the uh, brain injury literature. That's one of the hard lessons I learned at the beginning, you know, cause I thought, mm, can't be that much different. I got a hell of an education. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, good. Thanks for passing
2: that education on. What
1: about the core program?
2: What is that about? Core is just, just all of the, um, uh, we, we we do a lot of research and so we thought we'd give it a, a fancy name um, you know but it <laughs> it contains the SREBR, our portion of the skyre uh, I mentioned mentioned before Vancouver um, does the um, lion's share of the work and um, uh, their rabby which is largely done in London and then we do a lot of other research as well you know in other areas so or you know not just evidence-based reviews we are um Tor- working with um people in saskatchewan and toronto on an ms rehab one evidence-based review as well so that one's you know been coming along slowly but nevertheless um we're trying to duplicate the same work with ms rehab and that's um, project though um we've been helping them out is centered more out of um, toronto and saskatchewan
1: Hey, everybody, I wanted to talk to you about something that's really important, recovery from brain injury. Since 2016, I've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury. I get together with them on Zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour. And we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going, where they are in the process, what their ambitions are for their recovery and what's holding them back. Often a caregiver is also in the meeting and sometimes clinicians show up. Anyway, we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery. And then I take a few days, do the pertinent research and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. I email that manual back to their survivor and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information I'm going to be putting a link on the show notes, but probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's strongerafterstroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple. Strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right.
2: You talked to ask me about the future and where I think things are going. And I think that network meta-analysis is a tool that is available to us to start looking at things like the upper extremity post-stroke literature because it's so rich that it offers opportunities that we've not had before and then in particular with network meta-analysis so i don't know if you wanted me to talk about that because i think it's part of the dictator of the future
1: yeah that'd be good uh can we start with a definition for the the guy in the back who doesn't really know that's what marcus
2: is gonna do all right, cuz oh, Marcus, Marcus yes. is the one who's actually actually doing the guts of it. It, it was started here by a guy called Jerome Iru Iraja who's no longer with us. He's uh, gone off to do some research with Canada Mental Health he's working with them. Um, And so, uh, um, uh, Marcus is heading our um, network meta-analysis project, which is really interesting. And maybe Marcus, you can uh, tell them what it is and what it is that we're trying to accomplish.
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, to start, it's a fairly new technique. uh, As far as these sort of statistical analyses go, I would sort of liken it to a standard pairwise meta-analysis, which I would imagine uh, a lot of, or hopefully some or most of the the audience would be familiar with in that, you know, these uh, these meta-analyses would look at a particular intervention, for instance, constraint-induced movement therapy, and would compare it to usually some sort of control, a conventional therapy. And we pool together all the results of all the different RCTs, the studies, and we get a sort of summary estimate, a pooled estimate for what the effectiveness of that particular intervention is. Um, and these are obviously fantastic, but limited in the sense that you're only looking Looking at one intervention. And as we've discussed, we have many, many different interventions in stroke rehab. And so you run into a problem where you have to ask somebody to read potentially 50 different meta-analyses. And it gets a little difficult to collate all of that evidence into one framework or or schema that you can use to make decisions. What a network meta-analysis does is it can compare multiple treatments uh, against each other, both with direct evidence, so trials that have actually been performed comparing one to another, and it can also estimate indirect evidence. So it allows us to make an estimate for the, the comparative effectiveness of two interventions which might not actually be compared in the literature, right? There is no direct evidence for that. So, what it does, how it works really, um, we have intervention A, we can imagine, compared to let's say conventional control. Uh, We also have intervention B compared to conventional control. Now you can run standard pairwise meta-analyses between A and the conventional control, B and the conventional control, and that information, because it's the same comparator, what we can do is then estimate the difference between A and B, and you can imagine that whole thing being done for a multitude of different interventions. So that's sort of the basic idea of what it is, how it works. It just allows for the comparison of multiple interventions and really pulls together all of these different meta-analyses to essentially rank the treatments at the end of the day. It, it, It produces a ranking for which one is the most effective or has the highest probability, I should say, of being the most effective we think especially for you know a database like stroke rehab the upper extremity this really is a good opportunity where we can get a lot of this evidence collated into one model whereby you can get that information for this therapy and this therapy and i want to see a versus b and b versus d and so on and so forth
2: so the one the one that that marcus is working on now and and again The other, there's a number of factors that come to play, but when you're looking at randomized controlled trials that get incorporated in network meta-analysis, they have to be of an intervention compared to conventional care or compared to each other, and they get put into the network meta-analysis. And then you have to do that with a similar outcome measure. So, you know, you, you can't be mixing your outcome measures. It has to be a single outcome measure. So the one we've been initially experimenting with is the Meyer, And so we've been looking at randomized controlled trials that utilize the Meyer as an outcome measure, but also have a conventional control group. And um, for upper extremity, which, as I mentioned before, is a rich database, we actually have 150 trials that meet those criteria. So, you know, you have to have a big denominator to just get down to that, to be able to have that 150 that look at the Meyer, And then using that, we can do these meta-analysis on each of the different interventions, and we can do them in a way that also allows us to compare them, one with each other. And in the network meta-analysis, not only do you do the comparator as as, um, Marcus had talked about, but you also have to incorporate those studies that compare each of them together. And you have to incorporate that into your data as well. And at the end of it, you come up with a value where you can actually compare each of the treatments to each other and you can determine what treatment seems to have the biggest effect. All right. Which when you think about it, you know, when you've got so many treatments, If you can come up with understanding the limitations of the network meta-analysis, if you can come up with some sort of measure that says constraint-induced movement therapy works better than RTMS for patients in the upper extremity, suddenly you've got the beginnings, the beginnings of beginning to prioritize what adjunct therapies we might want to utilize. All right. And then um, we can break it down even further By looking at, because there's enough data there that we can break it down and look at things temporally. So that's one way where we can begin to be more personalized. And we can look at the data from the first uh, acute care, the first month, and what treatments seem to be most effective. We can break it down within the first three months and what treatments seem to be most effective. And we can look at those studies that were done in the chronic phase, because so many of the studies are done in the chronic phase. We can determine what treatments seem to be efficacious in the chronic phase. And when you do that, it's amazing how many of the treatments have a really significant impact, both in the acute and the subacute phase and some treatments in the chronic phase. And, and remember, when we're dealing with the Fugl Meyer, we're dealing with supposedly a measure that looks at impairment. You know, you could argue that you know some people would argue it doesn't, some people would argue it does, but most people agree that when you're looking at outcomes that measure impairment, the Fugl Meyer is probably the best outcome measure to look at. And so we can actually begin then to create a hierarchy or a priority of what treatments seem to work best for the upper extremity at what time. So that gets to be really cool, right? Yeah, when do you publish? Well, we've already got some preliminary data, um, and um, I can give you the overall totals. Um, but the, tre- the treatment that seems to be the most effective so far, in the when we look at all of them together and all the time frames, are I think, modified, constraint induced movement therapy seems to be the number one.
1: Developed by my colleague Stephen J. Page and uh, implemented. By, uh, the two of us. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Uh,
2: but, Bring it home. but, you know, walk around to any unit in, the, in Canada and ask them about constraint-induced movement therapy and know does it because it's hard and patients don't like it. And for some reason, it's not popular.
1: Neuroplasticity um, is tough work. doesn't matter what you're trying to learn. If it's new, one, it's tough. The
2: second one was functional electrical stimulation. Scored very high in compared to the other treatments, um, as did theta burst stimulation and motor imagery, as well as bilateral arm therapy. And interestingly, one of the trends that we found throughout was that Primers seem to work a little better than facilitators. Yet therapists tend to like facilitators more because it's closer to, I think, what they do in general practice. Which is maybe why primers work better because it's different, right? It's different than what you're actually doing. So that's what we're we're kind of working on now. We're, we're getting close to publication. Hey, um, Marcus, or not close to publication? Close to submission.
3: Yep, should um, be a few months. I mean, as Bob said, we've we've looked at the differences in time, and right now we're trying to gather some more data. On some other potential effect modifiers, uh, specifically therapy intensity, how long they're receiving it for, the follow up length of that particular study, age, gender, uh, ischemic versus hemorrhagic stroke. Um, So, those kind of things we'd like to incorporate into the analysis as well to give us a bit better of a uh, a bit better of a model at the end of the day.
2: But, you know, this is a type of project that takes, you know, three, three and a half months to do for just one outcome, right? So next we want to look at a functional outcome, maybe the at, right? Where we have enough randomized controlled trials that look at that. Um, but, you know... <laughs> again the challenge is getting the resources to be able to do this but i think it's i think it's 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 something that we need to think about because you know it's fine to keep doing all of these randomized controlled trials god knows we're good at it right we're doing a in the upper extremity we're doing an extra 100 or 95 every year I think we need to develop strategies where we actually begin to use this research and use those treatments. And I think network meta analysis offers an opportunity to be able to say that there's good evidence using this type of technique that this treatment seems to be more effective than some of the other treatments. And maybe that will be the thing that moves people along to begin to utilize it. Yeah, I think right?
3: it'll certainly help narrow the focus for even, you know, future research or, you know, potential clinical practice. It's definitely with all the, the different interventions, all the evidence, I think we we need a bit of a, a, a narrower focus in, in trying to find out what, what the most effective stuff is.
2: And you can see how the EBSR is one of the few things that actually can do this, right? Because we've got this large Crazy database, you know. I mean, it's just ridiculously big, um, and yet it offers these really, I think, unique opportunities to begin to explore the data in more depth and start answering, I think, really key questions that we need to figure out in rehab. Um, you know, to do be able to do a network meta-analysis, looking at the fugel Meyer as to what treatment is most effective. If you had to do that with all the randomized controlled trials at once. It's going to cost you millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? And you could probably do it in a simple analysis that's going to cost a mere fraction of that with the existing data. So, you know, to me, it seems that it's it's that's why we're, we're investing a fair bit into just doing the um, fuel mire as a good model. We think this is a, a fantastic opportunity to answer some of the really big questions in stroke rehab. At a fraction of the cost. So Easy. you're thinking
1: maybe uh, Marcus will get a raise at some point. <laughs> I mean, he's saving you millions and millions of dollars. Other people should pitch in from around the world. Therapists, we got to go fund me something. Um, I just imagine him over this Excel file that just goes on forever,
3: multiple screens, and oh. it's it's a quite a large Excel file, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I'm just saying that that you know we're looking at at ways to try and utilize the data. That is more than just gathering the data, you know, and presenting it to people. I mean, we want to try and present it in a way that perhaps directs people more, you know, uh, based on good science. Um, You know, it's not perfect science. And sometimes we get caught up in the fact that it's not perfect science. Right. And if I wanted to do perfect science, I'd do Cochrane, But um. I don't have that kind of money, right? (laughs) I did the SRABR as a cochrane, it would cost millions and millions and millions of dollars and just not pragmatic. But you know, that that is that's an example of where you have a much more rigorous process. But I think we're we're at a position where you know we 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 can begin to try and utilize. I think there's several things, messages you can take. Number one, I think we need to promote a framework for utilizing these treatments, these adjunct treatments. And I think we've done that with the primers and facilitators. It's relatively easy to understand and that a therapist can make intuitive sense of and use it intuitively. I think we need to probably internationally develop a plan where um, we begin to make recommendations with regard to the use of adjuncts and technology, which a lot of us have been calling for, but we don't have a international group to do that. And maybe it's Julie Bernhardt's group um, that can move that stuff forward. And then the third thing is, I think just the sheer um, volume of the research that we currently have offers up some opportunities like network meta-analyses to begin to evaluate that data and identify what treatments seem to have the biggest bang for the buck for specific patients, right? In this case, timing, um, you know, uh, at what point in the rehab would this therapy, or which therapy, is most likely to be useful? Now, the challenge with the network meta-analysis is that you know it's only as good as the data that goes in. And like I mentioned, we have 150 randomized controlled trials. So when we make these type of recommendations, we have to say based on the data that we currently have. Mm. Right? This is the. This is what shows up in terms of the analysis, recognizing that there are some significant uh, limitations, and you may have a treatment that just wasn't studied with the Fugelmeier, which case doesn't get included.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what Bob said earlier, just that this is you know uh, not necessarily a definitive answer, but certainly a good way to uh, guide. Future work and 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 future practice and and get the ball rolling at least and starting to uh, think about how we can implement these or or which you know trial we should oh we lost them
2: we lost them but but I I I, I think it's it's like we said it's a it's a good way for us to like one of the things you asked what's the future going to look like Um, I think it's going to involve a lot more of these adjunct treatments and ways to try and further improve on this standardization of care. And I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to, number one, emphasize just how extensive the data is on adjunct care. And uh, I think a lot of people already know this, but maybe don't really pay attention to it. And second of all, try and develop ways in which we can move things forward, you know, Uh, not necessarily get to the, you know, I say research is always about trying to get to the truth. (laughs) And we're far from it. And our piece hopefully will get us a little closer to it, but it clearly isn't going to be it. Um, but I do think, you know, I think we all agree that we're kind of at a point where we're stuck, you know, in stroke rehab, there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement therapy clin- forward clinically. You know, we've gotten really good at standardized care, and even that's starting to be eroded, you know what I mean, in some jurisdictions. And I think it's time for us to really think about what do we pivot to next, right? What do we add on to that to make it better, get people excited about stroke rehab again and and sort of help to um, end that erosion of funding that is occurring in some centers and encourage more funding in other centers.
1: Can I, and let me know if this is not a question you want to answer, but you have a therapist, maybe they're working on gait training and the person they're working with is subacute one month out. What do you think if you were to cook the soup, What would be the ingredients of a primer, a good primer with the actual gait training? Would that, could you do? um, And then what would be, how much would you put of each? I mean, a lot of these primers like mirror therapy, action observation, imagery, they're done in another room. They could be on their own. You could offload the workload of the therapist. They go into the room, they do imagery and then they come out and they walk. What do you think if you have an hour-long session with somebody, do you have any idea what the percentage should be for the
2: primer versus? No, I can't can't answer that question. First of all, we haven't looked at the upper extremity and the depth. We have the lower lower extremity and the depth. We have the upper extremity. And so I could give you an answer um, just to give you an answer, but I think it would be a bad one, Um, you know, because the truth is I'm not sure. Um, As I'm looking at the data in the upper extremity, many ideas are formulating in our heads as we're looking at the initial percentages from the network Ben analysis, things are becoming a lot clearer to us. And so we're able to, I think, come up with a cogent discussion and argument with regard to adjunct therapy in the upper extremity. I'm not sure that we've given it enough thought to justify your question with a proper answer in the lower extremity.
1: Because I wonder if that is the hook for therapists because they see this, oh, you got four more things that work great. Now I got to learn four more things. Whereas if you, I mean, one of the The clear messages to me is that the stuff that works is really quite simple. And it goes back evolutionarily to the beginning of humankind. It's a lot of repetitive practice. Or you know, you know, using one side in bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing, use one side to train the other side. These are very basic concepts. And yeah, the more we can make it simple for therapists so that they do bring it in. And then you see, you know, Karen over on the other side of the gym, she's doing it. Well, why don't I do it? And it's, it seems fun
2: and easy and the patients like it. So maybe that's the hook. And and I think, again, a lot of therapists do do it, you know, and and particularly in a lot of our uh, larger academic centers. And I think certainly even in our own center, we're seeing incorporation of more and more adjuncts. But I still think it's it's been a slow incorporation. And I think it's an opportunity lost. And I think it behooves us to try and provide more and more direction to that from a research standpoint as to what that should look like. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, begin to answer the questions. You can begin to incorporate some of the simple therapies, but then where does the technology fit in? Yeah, You know, where do robotics fit in? Where do um, um, RTMS fit into this model, right? Um, and and whatever newer technologies are coming down the pipe, right? Uh, we don't know what those are going to be. And where does sensory stimulation come, you know, and everybody has opinions on these things, right, in terms of what's better and what's not. Um, the other problem you've got is, is that stroke is a very heterogeneous condition. So one size doesn't fit all. So one of the challenges we have and, and standardization of therapy has helped us to provide consistent care based on neurophysiological principles. It doesn't necessarily deal well with the heterogeneity of stroke. Um, You know, for instance, mild strokes versus severe strokes. They are different. So we push these standardizations of treatment for stroke patients because it's a lot better than what we had, you know, and it's neurophysiologically based, but it doesn't necessarily optimally deal with the heterogeneity of stroke. And and therapists do that on their own naturally, right? That's why an experienced therapist is worth their weight in gold, right? Because they do that stuff. Um, But are there ways that we can utilize the research to begin to um, come up with ways to encourage more use of these adjuncts in a way that's going to maximize patient's recovery that we might not be doing now? And that's the big question for me down the road. You know, that's the, the unanswered piece looking at the research.
0: We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although i still don't understand what all of those numbers mean and one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them this podcast and you know just just making it easier for people to apply research based concepts in their practices or their recoveries so i think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and Whether or not people donate are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that?
1: that's true um and we do have a venmo account do you remember the address
0: i do it's at neurons at
1: neurons that's pretty simple it is and it's in our title so if you want to help out look we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going and uh you know as deb said it's not the easiest thing in the world Yes, we giggle a lot. and Yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the...
0: The Brain Injury Association of America?
1: That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment.
0: It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it.
1: Yep, we want to support all people that have had brain injury, and we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons.
0: Yeah, and we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more and the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us Mm, that's true
1: yeah okay great thanks guys thanks
2: You got 1307 randomized controlled trials which looked at 1906 incidents of uh, intervention post-stroke in the upper extremity and 85 percent of those are adjunct treatments we don't use very often so to me that's the thing that stands out Uh, it's not the other way around like these adjunct therapies we don't use much but there's not a lot of research for them it's the opposite of that that's where all the research is right so how do we take advantage of that you know all
1: i can say is it's cheaper it's easier it drives cortical change so uh, these simple things work. I mean, RTMS, the problem there is finances, robotics, money, you know, and a certain learning curve, whereas a lot of these other ones are something somebody in a skilled nursing facility can do tomorrow.
2: Yeah, but, you know, the nice thing about technology is donors like technology. Oh, yeah. You know, um, and so there's opportunities there, too, Um You know, uh, I, we're certainly find that in our center that, you know, our foundations that fund things, um, find it easier to find donors who fund physical new technologies, cutting edge. Um, And so, you know, it doesn't have to be an either or, it can be both, you know, and like I said, in that talk to the Malaysians, Um, In their top rehab centers, they have all the bells and whistles, right? They have a lot of really cool technology. I was quite impressed. Mm. Smaller centers don't have very much, you know, you're going to have to adapt your treatments to your center, right? And what you have available. But it doesn't mean that your patient has to miss out on the primers, just means they're going to be different, right? Or you're not going to have the full gamut to choose from. Um, And so, you know, it it, it does allow a fair bit of flexibility because there's so many interventions to choose from.
1: When is the the network meta
3: ready? And where, uh, we're we we're hoping to have it around November, I think for some November, nation. really. Yeah, around November. Marcus is Marcus I don't want to uh, I don't want to jinx it. Before Marcus Christmas.
2: Marcus continually reminds me that for a project like this you have to be absolutely fastidious. Like you got to cross your dot T's and dot your I's uh-huh. yeah. and it requires a lot of crossing T's and dotting I's. <laughs> what's the, what's the risk if something doesn't get crossed or dotted?
3: Well, it's, it's more to do really with the assumptions made statistically speaking, if you, you know, we can get into that if you'd like.
1: But. Well, well, you're comparing everything to a standard. So if you screw up 1.7, it, it, messes up everything else?
3: Right. And the standard might be different, right? Conventional care, I mean, that's part of the problem, especially in stroke rehab. It's, we're fortunate, I think, in the sense that there is a fairly uh, widespread use of these common outcome measures like the Fugelmeyer and the ARAT. We do have, uh, at this point, at least with with more recent trials, much more standardized use of these particular outcome measures. Um, but conventional care, for instance, differs from center, you know, it could be by a, a fair amount Considering, you know, some centers might use uh, NMES conventionally. Some yeah. might, you know, not at all. So uh, it's important to make sure that we've kind of uh, we understand what each protocol is for each of these interventions to make sure that when we do these comparisons and we say this is FES, that all the FES lines up and all the conventional care lines up in such a way that we won't be producing data that might not necessarily be accurate or as accurate as it could be. Um, And I think, you know, especially with the indirect evidence where you get those comparisons for trials that haven't been compared in the literature, and it's just the model estimating. That's where these things start to to matter a bit more, um, and making sure that that we're producing the best quality that we can with respect to, uh, you know, at ultimately advocating or, or producing these hierarchies of of treatments. That might be, you know, uh, that somebody might use as as a reason for, you know, deciding the next randomized controlled trial or a reason for picking that particular therapy. Um, So yeah, there's some nuances and some fine details to work out, but uh, we're getting there, and I think that uh, it'll ultimately be better for it.
2: So I think because it's our our first one and because it's a model, um, uh, we're really concerned about not doing the best we can to come up with the best possible data so that it's as accurate as possible. It's, it's, and it's, it's complicated and it takes time. So
3: mm-hmm.
2: we decided to invest the time in it because we think it's important.
1: Will it, will it delay the next iteration of the EBRSR?
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> to some extent it will. Um, you know, we, we've, 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 we are moving to a two year cycle. Um And I managed to procure some additional funding. So, you know, that's helped us to move along. Uh, But I think we feel we need to probably move to a two-meter cycle with the, you know, not just the fact that we wanted to do a a network meta-analysis to show what we could do with the upper extremity data, but also because of the PRISMA requirements that you heard earlier and everything just takes a lot more time now. Um, and it's all good. Um, it produces a much better EBSR. Um, but you know, it's still, it takes longer than for the the same amount of resources.
1: Well, I could be here all night, but I know you guys probably have lives and children and families, and you're probably getting hungry. And, uh, so we, I don't know. we should probably wrap this up. It's been absolutely fascinating and the amount of information that we got, I think our our listeners are going to be super happy about it.
2: Well, we want to thank you for inviting us. Um, I think we were pretty um, excited about being able to talk about something that's important to us mm-hmm. right now, you know, um, and help to get the word out, especially with COVID, right? It's not like we can do conferences anymore and stuff like as to the same degree. So this has been a really nice opportunity and, we really want to thank you for being willing to listen to us for two hours.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been two hours. That that passed quickly. Yeah. And we're, we've done our part in getting uh, the uh, evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation and all that stuff out there. So I, I wonder if you would then not make us pay you for using it constantly. And we can just strike a deal. It's the advertisement for that. Will that work out? That pretty good.
2: Yeah. Now one of the one of the reasons when we started it, the question was, will be charge people for it? And and the idea was no. We wanted to get it out to just and thank thankfully our our funders agreed. We wanted to make sure it got out to as many people as possible. And I think it's been successful that way. Um, and so I'm glad you're using it. Actually, I'm glad you're getting the word out.
1: It's unique. It's the only thing
3: out there like it. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Okay, Don. Thanks,
1: Marcus. Thank try, you so much. Try to have some fun tonight.
3: Yeah, you certainly will. I'll send the network to you when it's finished too. <laughs> oh, thank you. It'll be like
1: <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> It'll,
0: It'll be, be like Christmas. Volumes. It'll be a Christmas gift. That's right. Yeah. Okay, guys. Thanks so All right. much. Thank Our you so view. much. Bye, now. Have a good night. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> i want to go back into the clinic now i mean i never really wanted to leave but it, that conversation made me want to get back into um inpatient rehab or subacute rehab you know
1: deb hmm. we should think about writing a book because hey, if, we
0: got to do something there.
1: if we're going to be on the inside track you know what it could be called what? Noggins and neurons
0: <gasps> noggins and neurons inside track
1: yeah i mean He gave us the, he gave us, what is it? The golden card, the golden ticket, like in, in, oh,
0: like in Willy Wonka. Willy Wonka,
1: yeah. It's like, (laughs) it's all there. And I know our listeners are probably going to be, I hope they'll be psyched about this because.
0: Oh, I think they will. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.